0: hello and welcome to the oats for breakfast podcast oats for breakfast is a podcast affiliated with the Socialists project an eco-socialist organization based in toronto ontario hearing an interview with Adam Hilton, who is a professor at Mount Holyoke College based in the United States. During our conversation with Adam, we consider the interesting history of the Democratic Party and take a deep dive into the ways it is organized and structured. Our conversation with Adam helps reveal the limits and the possibilities of using the Democratic Party to advance a progressive agenda. Let's jump to the interview and I'll see you on the other side.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, just to start, I want to say that your essay that we're talking about today is just an exemplary piece of critical scholarship. And I think in terms of what we're dealing with on the left today, as far as, you know, looking ahead strategically, this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to produce in order to figure out what to do.
2: Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I did. I did mean it to be a strategic intervention. And when it comes to uh, socialist strategy and the Democratic Party, like you said, uh, nothing is very straightforward.
0: So I'm thinking about uh, the political parties we have in Canada. So, for example, the Conservative Party, you need to pay money, you become a conservative card carrying member, and then you can vote for the leadership of that party. So how is that different for the Democratic Party?
2: Well, I mean, the short answer is everything. American political parties have never had members. They have voters. They are mass parties. In fact, the Democratic Party was the first mass party in the world in the sense of the political party was trying to mobilize and enfranchise people in order to win contests for office. But they were never mass member organizations, right? There, there were no formal attachments that people who vote for the Democratic Party would have. There are no cards to carry. There are no dues to pay. And leadership selection mm-hmm. uh, has, uh, especially since the turn of the 20th century, been basically thrown open to anyone who wants to participate. Just to answer the question simply and straightforwardly, uh, the Democratic Party is in every way different.
0: Um, Can you talk about how the Democratic Party arose in contrast to European parties? Sure.
2: We tend to have a bit of an image or a narrative in our minds of groups, exploited working class people uh, in civil society, forming mass organizations, because of course, all, all their power is in numbers. So they join together, they form these things called political parties, they storm their way into the state right? By taking state power, and thus we have labor movements, labor parties, socialist groups, socialist parties, and that kind of thing. So that image is, if if it really captures anything, it captures the dynamic of party development in Europe. In the United States, parties were formed inside the state amongst lawmakers in legislative bodies to try and control the agenda. And then they went outward from the state to find voters who could re-elect them to office.
1: In your essay, you say that it was out of fear of violent repression, partisan conflict in the Union rank and file, and the off-putting sectarianism of many American socialists, which meant that there there didn't emerge a labor party in the US. Uh, so if you could talk a bit more about that, but also I'm is it also perhaps because of the early development of American political parties is is that partly to explain for why there isn't then this contagion from the left you know that leads to the development of political parties
2: I mean this is this is the century-long question of why there is no socialism in the United States or, or what we really mean is why there is no social democratic labor-based party in the United States to put it fairly uh, straightforwardly, political parties came after trade union and labor movements across the Atlantic, whereas on this side, political parties already existed. And more importantly, as the trade unions and trade union federations, like the American Federation of Labor, that first began forming uh, in the second half of the 19th century, the folks they were organizing were already partisans, many of them being, uh, especially in the late 19th century, many of them being Republicans, some of them being Democrats. And those partisan identities had often been organized on the basis of, re- of religion. And so trade union leaders, one thing they were very afraid of is if they officially joined one party, they would lose half their rank and file. And that's the constraint, right? So they opted instead for a pure and simple unionism, officially nonpartisan, of reward their friends, punish their enemies, doesn't matter which political party. Uh, they're involved in. And that also reflected what at that time was a fairly, because of the decentralization of the party, there were sympathetic uh, office holders in both parties when it came to supporting labor legislation, minimum wage, things like that.
0: Can you explain how the Democratic Party is decentralized?
2: Yeah, it's decentralized in a few different ways. One, while we especially uh, these days speak in terms of two parties, right? Uh, for most of their long history in the United States, um, national political parties as singular monolithic entities did not exist in the United States. These were confederations of state parties. So instead of talking about a democratic party, there were really 50 Democratic parties that came together once every four years That was the only time the national party existed solely to nominate a candidate for the only actual national office there is in the United States, which is the presidency. And then those 50 state parties would coordinate, try and assist in that campaign. And so the 50 state parties within the Democratic party didn't have much else in common with each other, right? They managed their own affairs uh, within their own states correspondingly would would adjust their own programs and stances, depending on what worked in that state.
1: Right. There wasn't this ideological coherence that one would
2: expect from a political party. Exactly. So, you got ideological incoherence and very often even a lack of political cohesion in, in the sense of binding together. For a national campaign, there were a few very Uh, high profile controversies within the parties. For instance, when the labor liberals who had been organized into the Democratic Party through the Great Depression and the Second World War inserted a strong civil rights plank into the national platform in 1948, and the Southern states simply walked out and launched a third party designed to sabotage the re-election of President Truman.
1: On that, I think it's interesting that in a sense, then, American political parties aren't political at all. They're they're quite apolitical. These these haven't been at least for most of their history, parties that people come around because these parties represent something that they believe in.
2: Now, there's something like the antechamber to the state, right? They're not quite in the state. They're not the same part. They're not a part of the state in the way that the treasury department is part of the state. But they are how you get into the treasury department, right? They they are the vehicle into the state, kind of in a a port of entry. Uh, So they're quasi-state institutions.
0: Just the word decentralization and the concept of something decentralized comes with this idea that, you know, it is inherently more democratic. But you're just explaining to us how the way the Democratic Party has formed, it's made it less democratic.
2: Yeah, the the flip side of decentralization is that you get local discretion about who has access, who can participate. And so then it all depends on, well... Who's in the position of authority at that local level? This, so when the new politics movement, which you could think of as kind of the 1960s new left inside the Democratic Party, when they were fed up with the fact that the, this decentralized Democratic Party had both labor liberals and Southern conservatives, anti-war doves and Vietnam War hawks. In the same coalition and programmatically was incoherent, that one of their major demands was to centralize power at the national level within the Democratic Party.
0: Mm, enough is enough. Enough <laughs> is enough. And to
2: a significant, to a significant extent, they achieved that. And we could get into the details of that if you want. It gets a bit into the weeds.
1: Well, let's let's go a little bit into the history of that. Um, because you talk about this effort in the 60s, especially going into the early 70s, of the left trying to reform the Democratic Party. So how did that work out? So also the context is, is fairly important here. And the
2: reason that they had a window of opportunity in which they could propose reforms, and they proposed sweeping reforms that initially were implemented without much resistance at all, uh, was in the context of 1968. And the Democratic Party goes through a wrenching crisis in 1968 where not only are the Great Society anti-poverty programs of the middle 60s coming under increasing scrutiny and popular disaffection as many conservative Democrats and right-wing Republicans were linking them to the increasing numbers of urban riots that were happening through the second half of the 60s, but then the Vietnam crisis on top of this, right, where this is a democratic war and it produces an anti-war insurgency through first uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy and then Robert Kennedy uh, prior to Kennedy's assassination. And so you have the famous Chicago convention that comes after this, the chance of the whole world is watching, the Chicago riot police and the National Guard beating the hell out of everybody on national television. So this produces a crisis inside the party where they say something needs to change. And a fairly small group of very smart and and well-coordinated lefty. Young liberals propose that there should be a reform commission, and they basically control the commission because no one's paying attention to it because no one has ever reformed a party this way before. And then before you know it, by 1972, they're able to nominate their own candidate, which is George McGovern, opponent of the Vietnam War. But McGovern loses and loses quite badly, so which produces a second crisis in the party, and the conservative part of the party is able to roll back some of those reforms.
1: But wait, wait I, I think there's something interesting that that we sort of skipped over here. This effort to reform the party, these people they go into the party, or they perhaps they're already in the party. They go they go to reform it, and they show up, and they realize there's not really a party here to reform. Right. So one of the things they propose is, well, we should have a party.
2: We should have a party in the European sense or the non-American sense of a party, there should be policy conventions, there should be more grassroots organizations, Uh, there should be ways for social movements to, to influence the party, there should be ways of integrating poverty organizations into the party, and most importantly to them is the nomination process of how to choose the president, become transparent and become open to anyone who wants to participate right? And that's the major reform they end up winning. So in a sense, they open the party, they open an open party, decentralized party even more. But they proposed all kinds of interesting new democratic infrastructure that would have created venues for all these diverse groups within the party to actually try and come together and build some kind of cohesive governing agenda.
1: There's a tension that kind of develops uh, within the left at this point where, you know, there's a level of uncertainty about whether whether you should be engaging with the Democratic Party and, and whether it should be outside it. And I think, you know, your essay sort of straddles this tension without coming out with a solution because you say, well, yeah, there's there's really no space in the American context to have a third party. Well, okay, so let's put it this way. In the post-McGovern
2: era, because the, ref- the 1968 reformers were really partially effective. So the 1968 reformers come along, they propose two main things, open the party, but also rebuild, actually build, transform the party into a cohesive, integrated national structure. The first reform wins, the second reform is defeated. So now what we've got, the most important, I think, way of conceiving American parties in the post-McGovern era, the 1970s to the present, is these are hollow parties. They are both somehow weak in the sense of they completely lack uh, any internal mechanisms or internal venues of deliberation, cohesion, community organization, uh, grassroots kind of efforts. But they also raise enormous amounts of money, so they're also very strong in that way. But the thing about a hollow party is that they outsource all the things that we think of parties doing, canvassing, door knocking, get out the vote efforts, even how to come up with these platforms right, that are published by state, state parties and the national party when they nominate a president. All of this is outsourced to non-party organizations. So it's kind of like you've got a hollow party and different civil society movement groups interest groups are filling up its contents
0: okay so you're saying that the platform for the democratic party comes from mobilizing these civil societies and groups etc whereas the, de- the republicans come from like consulting with business leaders and associations
2: yeah when you when you've got hollow parties the agenda of those parties including the platform is a reflection of who brings the most power to this party, right? Who can deliver the most votes? Who can deliver the most money? And I mean, frankly, just as in simple terms of numbers, there are way more groups, distinct, different advocacy organizations, uh, networks, think tanks, PACs, super PACs on the Democratic side of the aisle than there are on the Republican side. And so that's a lot to contend with. It's hard hard to draw up an agenda across a whole cornucopia of liberal, lefty,
1: centrist interest groups in the Democratic Party. So a lot of leftists uh, will say that that the Democratic Party is a party of the capitalist class, um, that it can't be mobilized for a working class agenda. And then they'll point to, you know, they'll even point to the Sanders campaign as an example. See, it didn't work and you paint a bit more of a complicated picture and so is the democratic party a bourgeois party or a party of capital and i and i
2: have a part of the the essay where i where i ponder this concept of mm-hmm. a bourgeois party which i think is probably very appropriate in all kinds of contexts though it's a little unclear to me as to well what what about the party makes it so bourgeois and particularly if the party is Sort of organizationally hollow in the way that we've been talking about, why should that structure be so controlled or dominated by capitalist class interests? That to me is, is a puzzle. Uh, it, it isn't quite clear to me. I mean, you could point to money, sure, but we've seen some pretty dramatic examples quite recently that money is in everything in American politics. Uh, it's pretty important. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot it actually can't buy, right? Yeah. It can buy some complicated algorithms and data sets and mailing lists and phone lists. What it's not very good at buying is actually um, large numbers of people to canvas and get out the vote.
0: So can you kind of talk about what kind of balance you can strike between people power and and financing? Like, how do they interact?
2: Right money, while always important, money has a political and institutional context that you have to put it in. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Hillary Clinton raised twice as much money as Donald Trump and she lost. That's never happened before. Usually, funding at the, for a presidential election is usually evenly matched.
1: She was the first robot candidate, though, running for that office. <laughs> that may have mattered.
2: Yeah. And of course, it's it's often pointed out that Donald Trump got quite a lot of what's called, you know, earned media, right, where he didn't pay for ads because the media was covering him constantly.
0: And that's what the money goes towards, right? The money goes towards paying for primarily for ads and and, and marketing and things like that.
2: Yeah, because think of it this way. The things that are for sale in American politics, right, the things that political consultants have now built an industry on are things that you can make a lot of money selling. So, it's all about software. It's all about the latest who can do what with the internet and how can we raise small dollar donations, et cetera, et cetera. The thing you can't make a lot of money on is uh, organizing movements. And so, political consultants don't sell those. They can't because they don't have connections like that. And it's hard to make money selling mass and masses of people. And I haven't seen an estimate of this, but it'd be interesting to see how much, quote unquote, earned media in dollar amounts, Ocasio Cortez has said She made the front of every single American newspaper when she won her primary in New York.
1: Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she went up against a very prominent Democratic party incumbent for a congressional seat in New York. She had uh, one-tenth the amount of money, but she won. Okay, so this is this is partly what you're getting at. But why has it taken so long for this this to kind of emerge as a trend why is it now that you know the left has been able to mobilize yeah just
2: to return to the hollow party thing what's difficult about the hollow party is a hollow party is easy to enter and it's very difficult to control because it's hollow you might compare it to that game as king of the hill i don't know if we have that in canada It's particularly violent, so maybe it's just an exclusively United States thing. We don't have violent games in Canada. Yeah, we don't have violent people. (laughs) So, King of the Hill is, uh, you know, you pick a small hill and the children run to the top. And whoever can push everyone else down the hill is the king. As soon as someone tumbles down the hill, they get back up and they come back at you. So you hold the position of king so long as you can fend everyone else off. So the problem with a decentralized hollow party is to win, you've got to keep winning. There, You can't colonize the Democratic Party because it's already institutionally hollowed out. It's more of an empty space that you can try and be the loudest in, the most successful in, but everyone is going to come at you all the time. So it's very difficult for a group to ever get a firm toehold on the party. And I think the left has been trying to do this for a long time. I mean, there has not been a serious third party effort since the Labor Party in the 1990s. So I think they've been pushing inside the Democratic Party for quite a while. I think a lot of other environmental things have changed. The increasing Lurch to the right of the Republican Party, I think, has been has made Clintonian centrism uh, less and less appealing for Democratic uh, activists and donors. the The donor elite of the party, I think, have been very disturbed by where the Republican Party has been going since two thousand. And I think, while many, of course, do predictably look at the Bernie Sanders thing and say, well, it was inevitable that he would lose, of Mm -hmm. course. I think many other people looked at it and said, wow, who knew he could get that far? And I think it was really, really crucial for what the left is doing in the Democratic Party now Mm -hmm. that Hillary Clinton lost. I think that
1: opened up more space.
2: Right. But it also
1: meant that Trump won.
2: Yes. Well, that's true. I think it has been a very the silver lining, if anything, I dare even call it that. But the silver lining is unified Republican control of national government right now has, I think, had a galvanizing effect on Democratic liberals and lefties to push back extra hard.
0: People often say that I, whenever some right wing person wins, like Ford Doug Ford in Ontario, you recently won, very right wing. I'm always like, okay, this is great. This is going to really help us out, but. I feel like it ends up doing far more bad than good in the end.
2: Yeah, the, one of the unfortunate asymmetries in American politics is actually how clearly the Republicans understand how they can use policy to disorganize their partisan opponents. I mean, the smashing of public sector unions, the, Supreme, the recent Supreme Court decision will initiate a new wave of attacks. The anti-awful racist scapegoating of immigrants and the Farther and farther away, we're getting from a pathway to citizenship for undocumented people. These are actually ways of undermining the voting base of the Democratic Party. And Democrats, had they been a little bit more strategic last time they were holding unified control in 2009 and 10, probably should have prioritized at least fortifying, if not reversing the trends of uh, of declining unionization, uh, and moved faster on pathways to citizenship, because that's actually a great way to create a base.
1: Yeah, but it, it doesn't seem like even now, uh, given the crisis the party is in, that it has or the establishment of the party, that it has a a response that is meaningful. I mean, everything is now Russia, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. Trump is just a Russian agent, Russia this, Russia that.
2: I think, I mean, and this could partly be what's going on between... The leadership of the party, the congressional leadership, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Charles Schumer mm-hmm. versus the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party, if you want to call it that, is you the anti-Trump thing, whether it's talking about Russia or criticizing him on any kind of gaffe. I think they think the anti-Trump thing is how they keep their base mobilized. Whereas the Ocasio-Cortez wing, the policy agenda that they're outlining it is, it is incredible how far that has shifted to the left. I mean, it, the Sanders policy agenda is now the common sense agenda for all the major 2020 aspirants at this point. I mean, Cory Booker is going to pretend to be a democratic socialist. <laughs> you know, obviously, it's inviting all the opportunists to do this, but who would have imagined that this could be happening? Co-optation and opportunism, that's a risk you, you run
1: with being popular but
2: that is a much better problem to have than being totally
1: marginalized thanks so much adam for it was my pleasure coming to talk to us during your vacation well thank you very much
0: i hope that you enjoyed the interview if you'd like to learn more on the topic keep an eye out for Adam Hilton's upcoming publication called From New Deal to Neoliberalism, The Transformation of the Democratic Party in the Age of Inequality. We'll also link to a couple of Adam's articles in the description. Thanks for listening to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please send them our way by sending us an email our email address is podcast at socialistproject.ca we also have a Patreon where you can elect to make a small monthly donation to support our project you can find it at patreon.com forward slash odesforbreakfast. for breakfast if you'd like to find out more about the podcast and the Socialist Project please visit socialistproject.ca thanks for listening in